It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Hey guys, welcome to the show. It's been a good week here at the money guy. We've been um, working hard. Um, get, having a few prospect meetings, uh, trying to catch up and figure out what's going on in this financial markets. And then you guys have been loading us up with some really positive emails. I think it's because, um, I don't know if you call it whining or whatever I did at the end of last week's show, but I told you I'd been getting a lot of negative feedback um, from some people I'd uh, you know, so-called offended. And um, y'all kind of came to my defense and made me feel really good about things. So I want to thank you for that. Uh, I'm hopefully going to get some time in the next few days to, to write some of you guys back. But if I don't get to everybody, I just want to thank those that, that did take the time to write me emails. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Without you, this show would not exist the way it has and been as successful as it has been. Um, for those just tuning in, just joining us for the first time, this is The Money Guy Show. I'm your host, Brian Preston. Um, by day, I'm actually a fee-only wealth manager on the south side of Atlanta. This is not what I do by the day. Um, I just do this kind of as a hobby. Started um, going on four years ago, um, threw out some ideas to see if people were listening. And what do you know, through some grassroots uh, you know, support from you guys out there listening, we have become very popular. We're on the front page of iTunes featured business podcast and um, even gotten more media attention in the past with interviews and, and so forth. And you guys are a big part of that. And we really, really appreciate that. Bo and I have been working hard to try and put together some show notes for you today. And one of the things we've got here is we came across some very interesting articles that I think you will... Um, you will like. And we also got an email from somebody who works for the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission. She, um, and I'm going to go into that. She, uh, I got an email from, from Amy, who's a listener of the Money Guy show. And she said that, you know, the Federal Trade Commission actually has a big announcement they did on charity fraud. That, they, you know, as you can imagine, with everything that's going on out there in the economy right now, is that when times get bad, like we have been, this is the second really big recession I've been in. Um, if you want to even call this a, a recession, this is what I'd call a very steep recession. But when people start hurting financially, they get very creative with how they're going to come about for money. And it's not always positive things they come up with. You see a lot of people who get into scams, schemes, and, and all kind of other things. And, and we're going to be getting into that and what Amy wrote me in her email. But I did want to touch base on one thing I'm starting to see a lot more of, too. And these aren't necessarily scams or schemes, but they, um, they're in that gray areas that I know it's big, especially um, with people that are in the real estate industry in my neck of the woods right now, is these multi-level marketing plans. And, and uh, in my, you know, in my neighborhood alone, we've we've seen people. I don't do Facebook just because I, I'm scared to to open up my life completely. I feel like by doing this podcast, I'm already kind of opening myself up a lot, as you heard in last week's podcast. But one of the things I, I do notice is that in Facebook, we've had all kind of controversies in my neighborhood because people we've we've got these multi-level marketing things that have come out. There's one in our neighborhood called Zoe Life, which I call Modified Fruit Punch. Um, my wife had a sample of it that I tried, uh, you know, that she got from a neighbor. And it, it tasted like, you know, those crystal light packages that you can, you can get and put in water um, and tastes like some tangy fruit punch. But it supposedly has all the vegetables you need for your diet and, and everything else. And it, it just, 
I don't think it's about the product. It's like most multi-level marketing. I think it's more about, you know, getting people to sell this product. And we're seeing this stuff. I've also got a client, me and Bo went to a, um, out of respect to our client, we went to a natural gas provider presentation and it was a multi-level marketing. Um, I did switch my gas service to that, to that out of respect to the client because the client is one of my favorite clients out there. Um, but it was one of those things where it's multi-level marketing. And I want to tell you, I know this is a little bit of a tangent from the charity fraud that I'm about to talk about, but I want to go ahead. I think some of my best points are made on some of these tangents is my problem with multi-level marketing. Sure, it's not illegal. It's not by definition a pyramid scheme. But what I do not like about it is how it reward where it rewards where, where the work is rewarded is that this is my problem with multi-level marketing and you can apply this to any one of these things that i'm talking about is that if you work hard and go out there and sign up and sell a lot of product in the real world what i consider the reasonable world you should get rewarded for going out there and working hard and selling that product to people with multi-level marketing, it does not necessarily work that way. You don't get the lion's share of the benefit from selling. The person that brought you into the system is the one that's going to get the lion's share of the benefit. And that, that's kind of the, what bothers me about the whole system. I believe that hard work ethics should be rewarded, and not just by how lucky or how good you were at um, bringing in a workhorse. And that's kind of, that, that's my ultimate problem with the multi-level marketing is it doesn't reward the hard work. It rewards the people who, I, 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 maybe this word is harsh and I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying this, but you're almost, well, I better not, I was going to say pimp, but you know, that's, that's probably, but it is hard if you're going out there and grabbing people and it's, you're, you're, when it's not about the product, it's not about the sales, it's about getting other salespeople underneath you, it, I think it gets away from the ultimate, what I consider part of the reasonable world is where you work hard, you sell product, and you make money off of your hard work. I don't, not making money off the guy who brought you in to the system. That's what ultimately really bothers me about multi-level marketing. But I do think it's very interesting that whenever we have these down economic times, these things come out with a vengeance. Um, I think every real estate agent in my area is doing some type of multi-level marketing to get everybody in the world doing this stuff. But let's get back to Amy and the email she wrote me. Amy wrote, Hi, Brian. I thought you and your, your readers slash listeners might be interested to know that the Federal Trade Commission is cracking down on bogus charities and warning consumers to, consumers to ask questions before donating money. Today, the FTC and more than 40 states announced a nationwide sweep targeting scam artists who claim to be raising money for military veterans, firefighters, and police officers. In reality, almost all the money went to the fundraisers themselves. Scam artists like these can be very compelling, so it's important for consumers to know the warning signs of a charity fraud. Check out the website is ftc.gov, ftc.gov, backslash, or, you know, this is, don't write me the mean emails, please, but the backslash, forward slash, I get those backs, but the slash charity fraud 
Um, so let me give you that one more time. FTC.gov slash charity fraud for tips and information. And feel free to use any of our material, including our newest consumer alert, alert supporting the troops. For information, for more information, you can also read the media advisory, and she gives me a link to that. So, and then she writes, thanks so much, Amy. So, Amy, pretty cool. Love getting the actual emails. That means we have somebody in the government over at the Federal Trade Commission that's a money guy, you know, listener and fan, and, and I love that stuff. But I, I wanted to kind of summarize what Amy had provided me on with some of those links. So, here's a few ways that you can avoid being a victim of a scam. You can go check out these bullet points by going out to the to the website if you want to look at the show notes at money-guy.com. It says, for point number one is ask for the charity's name, address, phone number, and then written information about its programs. And this usually, I'll tell you, this is a, a tactic I've used quite a bit is that when somebody calls and asks me for money, specifically for a charity, I tell them to send me something. Hey, send me send me a package in the mail about what you got going on, what programs. And I got to tell you, a lot of times that will run a lot of people off. I don't know if it's just because they, they they don't want, they think they're going to lose you because of the mail and the time, or if they're just too lazy to send you the package that that's not their job. They're more phone operators, and it's not their job to send out the kit. Or if they're just not legitimate. So I have found if you just ask them to send you some written information, it usually will um, let you know how serious this charity is about getting your money. Also, ask whether the person contacting you is a professional fundraiser and how much of your contribution will go to fundraising cost. Because you want to, you know, ultimately, when we all give money to charities, we want to feel like we're making, um, you know, helping the world. We're doing something good, whatever the cause is. And when you find out, you know, if, if 60 to 70 cents on the dollar that you gave is going just to pay that professional fundraiser, going to upset you. So you want to know how much is actually being paid to the the actual boots hitting the ground for that organization and, that, and, and what you're trying to do there. Check the history of the organization with the office that regulates charities in your state. Avoid also high-pressure pitch, pitches. It's okay if you want to hang up on somebody, too. It is just a phone call. And then watch out for a thank you pledge. You know, a thank you for, for a pledge you, you supposedly have made, but you just don't remember that pledge. That could be just be a, a way they kind of break through to try to get you to, to give them more money. Avoid requests for straight-up hard cash. Avoid charities that offer to send a courier overnight delivery service to collect your money. You know, i got to tell you, I'm worried that I've been a victim of that. There is a police organization that calls me every year, supposedly local police organization, and they call and they say, hey, if you, you know, once you make this pledge, we'll send somebody over, you know, we'll schedule time to get them to come pick you up, pick it up. You know, and I did this for three straight years, and they called me every year. And I noticed this time, instead of just letting Priscilla have a check waiting for him at the front desk, I actually happened to be at the front of our office building when when the person came. And he was in plain clothes, wasn't in a police, you know, uniform. He was just in a plain clothes, normal-looking dude, and he picked up the check. And I started getting really suspicious when that happened. And I was talking to another tenant in my office building who works for. He, he handles the benefits for a lot of the small businesses as well as the government agencies in town. And, and he says he doesn't support that just because he's not sure how much of that's really helping the local police department. So I'm telling you, if I can get suckered into this stuff, I think anybody can because I try to be a pretty good watchdog. So be careful. Listen to what the FTC says and, so, and avoid charities that offer to send that courier or overnight delivery service to collect your money. Um, avoid charities that guarantee sweepstakes winnings in exchange for a contribution. According to U.S. law, you never have to give a donation to be eligible to win a sweepstakes. Avoid charities that bring up overnight 
especially that kind of spring up overnight, especially for natural disasters or claiming to be for the officers, veterans, or firefighters. They probably don't have the infrastructure to get your donation to the affected area or the people. Donate to charities with a track record and a history. And also check out an organization before you donate any money. Some phony charities use names, seals, and logos that look or sound just like the, the big national ones that you've all heard of, call the legitimate organization to make sure that they all do check out. Also, don't be shy, and I think this is an important one, don't be shy about asking who wants your money. Know if you're speaking to a volunteer or a paid fundraising agency. Find out exactly how much of your money is going, where you want it to go. And then ask for a receipt that shows the amount of your contribution um, that is tax deductible. Because I I will tell you also, you know, we do... um, Fidelity has a charitable gift fund. You'll heard me talk about that when I had a special podcast last year with the um, local Habitat chapter. And um, we, one of the things we found out on charities is that we use the Fidelity's charitable gift fund for, for our clients that want to give money to Fidelity, and then we kind of control through the gift fund wh- you know, which charities benefit from those, those contributions that are made. And one of these, we had a missions organization that one of my clients wanted to make a let's just say it was over a $5,000 contribution to this mission. And um, when we went to go do the distribution through Fidelity, Fidelity goes and checks everything out. They go and, you know, they go to the IRS, they go and make sure it's a truly legitimate organization. And I was shocked that this local missions organization that had this huge fundraiser at the um, aquarium here in Atlanta, um, had a huge fundraiser there right in the big ballroom. Well, Fidelity calls me up and says, hey, Brian, by the way, that charity is has not filed a tax return, you know, their 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 informational tax returns in the last two years. So we're not going to distribute that, those thousands of dollars to them because they're not up on their taxes. And so, you know, then we called the charity directly, and, and I don't think it, the organization was fraudulent, but it does start to make you wonder how efficient that charity was at, you know, if they can't even keep themselves organized enough to, to keep the paperwork going that lets them be a, a recognized 501c3 organization. So very eye-opening experience for me, and I, I try to give you these real-life experiences I know I've experienced, so you can kind of see it. This stuff really does happen. So that's that's how you can protect yourself from from the fraud, the scamsters, and everything that else is going on, including me giving you my insight on why I do not like multi-level marketing. Um, the, the second article I want to discuss with you guys, and like I said, you can go to the website money-guy.com if you actually want to see the links for these websites, is that the, it was titled, and this was in the New York Times, and this New York Times article was, was written by Andrew Martin, and it was published on May 19th, 2009, and I thought it was, it was titled, Credit Card Industry Aims to Profit from Sterling Pairs. And um, I found out, it was very interesting to me when I was reading this stuff, is I'm considered a deadbeat credit card um, client, and the reason I'm a deadbeat deadbeat credit card, you know, client is because I pay my balance off every month, and then I'm I'm all about the rewards. Um, I have a um, Chase Cash Rewards Plus card that's not really available anymore. Now they have like their Chase Freedom, but I get five percent back on groceries, drugstores and gas. Those are the three. So, and those are big ones. We, we spend a good bit of money on groceries and gas each month. And then um, drugstores, you know, my wife being pregnant and all, we, we tend to be going to the drugstore, it seems like, a lot more these days, too. So, 5% back is awesome. I bet I, I, bet I get at least 
$500 to $600 a year back from just that one credit card alone. And then my business credit cards, they're also with Chase, just because um, I have a Chase business card that gives me 3% back on all office supplies, all restaurant purchases, and um, there's a few more. I think it's specific retailers or home improvement stores or things like that. But I, I get a good bit back, you know, several hundred. I bet I get an average about $1,200 a year from benefits between my company as well as from my personal credit card, which are great. And, but I, I found out that the credit card industry labels me a deadbeat, pay, you know, a deadbeat client because I'm, they, I'm not extremely profitable for them on the fee side, meaning that I don't have a lot of um, interest fees, I don't have a lot of late payment fees or anything like that. So I thought this article was very interesting because what this article is basically saying to me and everyone else is that the free ride might be coming to an end very soon And because what they explain is that banks are looking to revive annual fees, curtail cash back and other rewards, and begin charging interest immediately on purchases instead of allowing grace periods of weeks. You know, and that's what, grace periods used to be like 30 days, if you remember. Now they've dropped down to 25, and now they're even talking about reducing grace periods on your credit cards even more. Um, there was a Edward Yenling, I hope I got that name right, of the American Bankers Association was quoted in the article as saying, those that manage their credit well will in some degree subsidize those that have credit problems. That's not a good recipe. Not liking that myself. Um, I don't know if I completely agree with this, however. I have to believe that if um, my credit card company started charging me interest on my purchases um, and I don't receive those rewards that I've gotten so accustomed to, I'm probably going to switch back over to traditional cash and then the old debit card. You know, Because one of the things I do like about credit cards, I know I'll I always get the comments from um, the, the, the all debt is bad people is that I know when I, it sure is nice to um, pull up to the, the gas pump and, and be able to use that credit card. Um, now, they probably can use the debit card, so we probably are washing this. But I, I'm telling you, if they take away um, the rewards and the grace periods and, you know, and all we're left with is convenience, I can switch to those debit cards. Even though really the problem I've never used a debit card is that I never liked attaching my checking account to something so accessible um, like a debit card you know that has that visa logo that goes right to my bank account because I always worried what if I, I even though I've never lost my wallet knock on wood or had my wallet stolen I was always so scared if somebody got a hold of a debit card they could clean out you know a checking account now I know I could possibly get that money back banks will say hey you can get that money back if you just show us this was fraud but the problem is is what do I do during the weeks or, or you know or 10 days that it takes to figure out and get this all sorted out I probably will have bills that are due during that time so I've always shied away from debit cards I liked how credit cards only had really a $50 you know exposure level there and a lot of times I've actually had some you know internet fraud and other things happen on my credit cards and usually that $50 threshold that they put out there is never enforced. I've never had to pay for any of those fraudulent things that are done through the internet or, or whatever. So I've always been a little nervous about the whole debit cards, but if they take away my rewards, I'm going to start rethinking that for sure. Um, it goes on in the article to explain that these banks and credit card companies aren't charities. They too are business operating for profit and have shareholders to answer to. Um, I have to I have to stop right there and kind of deviate it once again because me and Bo did a little research, and we found out. I think it's it's good for us to kind of pin, you know to point out that sure they're not charities, but realize credit card companies make money off of every transaction at the when you go to the store and use your credit card. Is when if you buy a hundred dollars at a at a store, 
you're not the credit the retailer is not getting that hundred dollars they're only going to get ninety eight dollars of that money typically because what happens is is that 1.75 of that two dollars is going to the bank that issued the credit card and then the quarter is going to the retailer's bank so like i said you pay for a hundred dollars worth of merchandise at a store the store only gets $98 of it because there's a kind of a convenience fee that is charged to um, that the, the, the banks make for those credit card purchases. Also realize that Visa and MasterCard make an additional fee called a processing transaction um, that, that goes on that the fees around point is a, is a nickel per transaction. So if you figure that out not on top of just those percentages they're also making a nickel a transaction every time you use a credit card as well that you add that up it's kind of a whole um, superman equation that that lex luther had um, back you know in one of the superman movies where he's going to just take a penny off of all the different checks out there in the world and it was going to turn out to be millions and billions of dollars it's the same way with there's so many transactions coming off of the credit card industry that they are making a ton of money off this and this is just off the purchases um, i found another article from bcs um, alliance it's it's called the credit and debt solutions it's bcsalliance.com and they had it says many people might be surprised to learn that a single credit card issuer mbna earned 1.5 times more profit than mcdonald's in 2004 citibank another major major credit card issuer earns more profit than both microsoft and walmart um, and it says, well, how did the credit card industry become so profitable? With Americans charging $1.5 trillion per year on their credit cards, one can understand why the industry is so profitable. So I, I kind of, you know, I understand that banks, everybody's, you know, likes picking on the banks right now. And I don't want to pick on the banks, but they're not charities by any scope of the imagination. I just want to remind people they don't do this for free. So I'm not, I don't consider myself a true deadbeat credit card customer because, you know, it's probably not uncommon that I am spending tens of thousands of dollars of years, tens of thousands of dollars per year on credit cards, and they're making 2% off of each transaction plus the nickel each time I swipe. It's probably a pretty good proposition for them as well, even though I'm getting those rebates. Um, let me find my place back where we are, too. And it just goes on to say that they have shareholders to answer to, but, you know, I'm one of those shareholders. I think it's, I think it's kind of a bait and switch. It's not the credit cards that have necessarily got these banks in trouble. It's more falls back on that mortgage side is, you know, they want a little sympathy here and there um, because, you know, the government is probably cracking down on them being able to change interest rates on people so fast. And, and, and that's, they shouldn't be able to change it so fast. So I'm kind of glad they're doing some of these things, but, um, you know, it, it's, it's interesting how the banks are kind of putting it out there. The article also goes on to share some interesting statistics. While the banks are not required to reveal how much they make from penalty and interest and fees, Robert Hammer, an industry consultant, noted, how would you like to have that name? Robert Hammer. What a great name. He, he ought to be like a WWE wrestler with that name. Robert, Robert Hammer, an industry consultant, noted that the amount of money generated by penalties Fees like late charges and exceeding credit limits has increased from about one bi for, by about one billion dollars annually in recent years, and should top twenty billion dollars this year. However, the government stress test did show that the top, nation's top 19 biggest banks will take on $82 billion in credit card losses over the next two years. One thing I thought was interesting: I talked to a, a credit union president yesterday, 
I consider um, him a friend of mine. We, we talk from time to time, and we were talking about those stress tests. And what I, he said that I thought was very interesting is that a lot of those stress tests let them keep the goodwill they had built up in these banks. I mean, there was, there was one, I don't want to say the name of that bank, but it was close to half of the assets that they listed in the stress tests um, was goodwill. And what goodwill is, remember, banks grew tr- tr- tremendously because um, what they were doing was they were gobbling up smaller banks. You know, there was a lot of mergers and, and, you know, banks joining up with each other, and they'd pay a premium. They'd buy a bank for more than the assets they had on the books. So when you, in accounting terms, when you buy a, a, a business or an asset for more than it's worth, the, the difference between what it costs the bank that's selling it and the bank that's buying it is what's called goodwill. It, it's what I call vaporware, meaning that is, you know, sure there might be some value there on the goodwill, the name, the trademarks, and those type of things, but it can very much evaporate and vaporize and go away at the drop of a hat. So uh, it, it concerns me one thing about these stress tests. I do wonder if they were a little massaged and a little watered down in the fact that they did allow them to keep that goodwill and other issues that this um, credit union president was telling me because that stuff, if you go to try to borrow off that stuff, those assets all of a sudden don't seem as valuable as they were because that's what that's what a lot of the, the, they had on their balance sheets is because they were doing so many acquisitions out there. Just a little tidbit of information. The final article I want to share, and I know go ahead and get prepared because I, I do this as much as I can. I beat up on Social Security um, and what a joke it is. There's your Ponzi scheme. If you want to know what a Ponzi scheme is, and I know people can already count on two to three negative emails, but I love it because I really think it is a Ponzi scheme. Go type in Social Security on our search bar on our website, and you'll see some of the most heated discussions on why um, I think Social Security is a Ponzi scheme and the people who disagree with me on that. But it says the, f- the final article I have is that that I wanted to share that's really of interest to me is that it came out, let me flip through, it's from um, Britbart.com, Social Security and Medicare Finance is Worse, and I think this came out about a week and a half ago. Y'all probably heard about this. It was all over the national news for a little bit. It said a new study found that Medicare is currently paying out more than it receives and that Social Security will start paying out more in benefits than it collects in taxes in 2016. And the giant giant trust fund will completely run out of money by 2037. Now realize this is issued by the Social Security Administration. This is not some, you know, political hack piece that has, you know, some type of, um, you know, partisan goal that they're trying to, you know, make the the left look bad or make the right look bad. This is coming from the Social Security Administration. And last year, I was scared to death when they said, hey, we're going to be paying out more than we take in by year 2017. Well, guess what? They come out this year and go, oops, uh, because the economy stinks, it's now going to be 2016. And it used to be in the past with Social Security, we could all go, oh, that's going to be so bad for our kids. We have to, you know, I feel so bad that our kids are going to be stuck with that bad situation. 2016, guys, is seven years away. I don't know about you, but, that you know, kids don't turn into working adults in seven years. This is something me and you are going to have to deal with. And, and that kind of scares me a lot. Um, like I said, I've already kind of let that out of the bag. As it said, Medicare is currently, this is even worse, Medicare is currently slated to be insolvent by 2017. 
So Medicare is going to run out of money even before Social Security is. Obviously, the reason for the dates being sooner than originally anticipated is the current state of the economy. According to the article, since December of 2007, 5.7 million jobs have been lost, and the unemployment rate hit a 25-year high in April of 8.9%. Fewer people working plus more people retiring, i.e. 78 million baby boomers, um, means less money flowing into the system. So the way I see it, there's only really one way and only one option that they're going to solve this problem. And um, we've done some research on that. And let's, let's talk about what that is. That is called, they're going to be raising taxes. I don't care, Republican, Democrat, you know, whatever party you want to say you're in, they're going to have to raise taxes and cut benefits. Um, I, I think if you're a baby boomer who's probably really close to retirement age, you're not going to have to worry about this. But um, for us younger people, probably go push that retirement age. If I was guessing, they're probably going to have us, you know, working until we're 87 years old before we get any benefits. I'm being facetious, of course, but it is going, they're going to have to raise the, 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 the date that we can take benefits. And I wouldn't be surprised. I just think it's coming. It's part of the, the soak the rich mantra is that, um, that I think we're going to probably see where if you make like over $100,000 a year, maybe your earnings don't even count. You don't even get to, you know, count those towards your future. You're going to make you kind of be self reliant while we um, let everybody else, you know, still get the benefit. I don't know what's going to happen, but it, but it's not good. I do know when I was flipping through my research um, on that, we on the premium section, we have a, 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 a chart that we put out there called fiscal follies. Now that's fiscal with an F, not physical like the Olivia Newton-John physical song. This is fiscal follies. And we've got a look at the government spending over the last 40 years from 1969 to 2008. And it will freak you out over 40 years how bad we've screwed this up. And this is not a partisan piece because I will tell you, um, old, you know, President Bush really screwed some things up too, as well as, you know, his father, you know, George H. Bush, he, he was a kind of a, a really heavy spender. Um, you know, the only, the only time things really look really, really good, if you're looking at this chart we have, is really under the Clinton presidency, with the Republican legislature. And what this shows me is, is that us as citizens, we need to quit talking about Republicans and Democrats because all we do is, is beat each other up and um, you know hurt our heads, hurt our hands from hitting each other and, and get into these squabbles and fights and realize that the best thing that ever happens is when government gets really not much of anything done, when we have gridlock. So I think the way I'm going to start voting, instead of voting for a party, I'm going to vote for the opposite of what's in power. Because in the years that President Clinton was in office, and then you had the Newt Gingrich contract with America, Republican um, that were in the House and the Republicans that were in the House and Senate, you had the government, you had tax collections increase at 10.7% a year. Meanwhile, government spending only increased at 3.69%. So you can see how we had a period there where actually we were taking in more money than we were spending, and the deficit for the country started going down. Under every other you know period we've had of government, including when we talk about George Bush um, W, who was who just left office, tax collections only increased by 3.07 percent a year, which they were increasing. But yet somehow the government spending 
increased at 8.31% per year. So you can see how if you have less government collect, you know, tax collections coming in, but you've got more and more government spending going on, that deficit that's out there trickling it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and, and it starts to scare you. And what I find very interesting is that you hear all the time, but from President Obama and their administrations, they don't want to repeat the mistakes of the previous administration, but yet I just heard, you know, we've all heard all over the news that the new budget is going to be $3.6 trillion this coming year. And, and I'll tell you what, there was an article in the New Yorker, it was a very in-depth article in the New Yorker, I don't, it was last month or whatever, great article. And what I thought was very interesting, it went through the whole budgeting process that President Obama and them worked on. And I don't know about you, I'm big into budgeting and financial management, obviously, from what I do for a living. And whenever I've worked in a budget, I always like to know what my top line number is. You kind of know what you your thresholds are, and then you back into what you can do as a household once you get that. You know, that that's the common sense way, you know, but if your government they didn't do that. They got into all, they did a lot of collaboration where they put all their goals down on a sheet of paper and they said, how much is it going to cost to reach these goals? And then after they got all those numbers, they added them together and they go, yeah, we can do it. They didn't do a top-down approach, so they didn't have a top-line number. So that's why we got to a 3.6 trillion dollar budget. Now you have to understand, we were making fun of President Bush, W., for his $2.98 trillion budget, even with all the bailouts that he did. So now we're up to $3.6 trillion. And what do you think is going to happen to tax collections next year for 2009? I will tell you, my own personal income is off by 25% this year. So you go get, government's going to get 25% less taxes out of Brian Preston than they did last year. And I'm sure I'm not the only you know, high income person out there whose income is off substantially. So I got to tell you, I think tax collections are probably going to get beat up a little bit. Meanwhile, we've increased the, the this annual budget by another 600, um, you know, billion dollars. What do you think that's going to do? That's going to drive that, tr that deficit that we have as a country that's $5.8 trillion right now, you know, at the end of 2008, or where it's estimated right around that range. It's going to push it up even more because if you're spending more than you make, just like you'd run up credit card debt as a personal, as, a, as an individual, the government's doing the exact same thing. And we've got a problem going on that this is what really freaks me out, is that China, Brazil, and some other countries, instead of just saying, hey, you know, the dollar is the dominant world currency that we all, you know, trust and use it. Um, let's quit using that as our dominant world currency because these guys are not being responsible with their ability to print more and more money. And when, when countries like China, who owns a lot of our debt, start making those questions, be careful of inflation. I'm just saying it sure would be nice if Washington could get wake up and realize they have to start running things a little more balanced. Um, government never seems to be able to cut back, even though me and you as individuals have to cut back. And that's not, I shouldn't say that's not all government. I'll tell you, I'm on the school board here um, for the seventh biggest school system in the state of Georgia, Henry County School Board. And we have over 40,000 students, or right around 40,000 students that we take care of. And I'll tell you, we're doing major cuts. We've heard from the voters. We've heard from our population. We're about to cut a lot of stuff, and it's going to hurt. I just don't understand why on the national level, government never seems to be able to cut. It's always grow, grow, grow. And it doesn't always work like that with, it, uh, with us. I mean, my income's off 25%, but does, does that mean I'm not going to grow in the future? Of course not. I just know that this is a temporary thing. It'd be nice if government 
could wake up and say, hey, we're, you know, we might need to cut back. Maybe we don't, instead of building the budget where it's every year you get a 3% to 5% increase in that department, we get the same budget as last year. Why, why can't we just spend what we did last year since everything's down? I don't understand why government always has to grow. Hey, one last thing. I'm going long on this thing, but I've got to, I've got to ask these two things. I need your input. Um, one of these has to do with actual um, financial content, and the other one is actually a personal thing, is that we, um, we, I don't know if it's because we're in this box of living in Atlanta that we hear this stuff all the time. I have been asked by several local people to do an analysis of the fair tax. Um, the fair tax would, instead, of, it would eliminate the income tax code and go to a strict sales tax on both service, which is kind of a new thing to, set, to, to put sales tax on service, but also, you know, sales tax on your products that you buy, and then it would wipe out doing, um, you know, Social Security, Medicare, gas taxes. It's supposed to wipe out all the taxes out there. I wanted to see if there was any interest in me doing a very in-depth podcast on that. Now, it's going to take a lot of research on my part, and that's why I'm asking this. Before I go put the time in, I want to make sure that there's people, because we're, we have a national audience. This is not a Georgia podcast. This is a national podcast. And I want to know if I'm, just because I live in the state of Georgia, where Neil Bortz and John Linder, who, who've written all these books on this and, you know, gotten a lot of, you know, people in a fever pitch around here, if this is something on the national level people are interested in, or if this is just something that's going on down here in the state of Georgia. So let me know if I, if I get 20, 30 emails saying, yeah, Brian, this would be great. I'll know that there's hundreds of you that probably want to hear it. Cause I feel like every email I get is probably the equivalent of a hundred listeners. Cause I know most people don't write me. Um, so let me know if you're interested because I think I'm in a unique situation is that I do do some accounting and, and CPA work as well. And so I have medical companies that are on the service side that will have that tax on them. I have manufacturing companies with metal fabricators. And then I'm, a, you know, probably a pretty good representation of the service sector, too, with my business. And I want to go see the side-by-side analysis of what system is actually more beneficial from a cost standpoint and or if it's going to help small you know help or hurt small business owners which are the backbone of America. So let me know if um if that's something you're interested in. Second, me and Bo are starting. We, you know, I've been working out. My New Year's resolution was to get in better shape because I, I've gotten to the, now that I'm in my middle 30s, I've started thinking about my health a little bit more because there's no reason to make all this money, save all this money, give all this money back, and then leave this earth really early because I didn't take care of my ticker. So I've, um, I've decided to, to start getting back in shape. And now that me, Bo's got me to a good baseline level where I don't feel like a, a complete idiot in the gym working with the free weights anymore, we've decided we're going to try that crazy, crazy thing you've heard on the, the nightly, you know, if you watch TV late at night, the infomercials, that P90X. So we're going to be doing P90X starting on June 1st. So we've got about another week. Um, before we start it. But if there's enough interest from you guys on the premium membership section of, of the podcast, which by the way, is supposed to go live in the next week. I had a heart to heart with our consultants. They assured me by middle of next week, we should be able to have the site up and live with all the content. Those that have paid and subscribed, you will give a yay because you get your you know, get your membership actually activated. And hopefully the rest of you guys will jump in on that intro- introductory offer that I'm going to be offering. But if there's enough interest, if I can get 15, 20 people to email me, say, hey, we'd be curious to see if Bo did a private section, you know, that had um, just kind of some updates about measurements, um, you know, maybe even some videos and pictures from time to time. I haven't figured out how much we want to open ourselves up for, um, but I'd let Bo do um, some type of mini blog 
on our, our P90X journey because I think it's kind of interesting. If you go to YouTube and type in P90X results, you can see a lot of people get excited about this stuff. And we're starting to get kind of excited about it because um, health is, is becoming more and more important. I know when the economy really stunk, um, going to the gym really helped a lot of the stress that I was having. So I'm, And I'm starting to finally feel results coming about feeling healthier and I think oh, I can handle if we get back into another bad economy hopefully um, this stuff will help out as well but uh, I know that's a little on, on the tangent side of things you know why would we t be talking about working out on a financial website but you guys I get I get an equal amount of emails some people love the personal emails some hate the personal emails so um, when I talk about personal topics so I feel like I'd throw it out there and see if it's stuck on the wall if it didn't no big deal you're not gonna hurt my feelings but thanks for listening I'll talk to you in about a week if you want to write me my email address is brian b-r-i-a-n at money-guy.com you can also go check out our show notes at money-guy.com and also check out the premium membership section that's going to be offered at an exclusive um half price discount for the first month that we open this thing up and it is supposed to be going live in the next week and you can check that out at money-guy.com i'm your host from the money guy show brian preston talk to you in a week the money guy podcast is hosted by brian preston and brian preston is a partner with preston and cleveland wealth management preston and cleveland wealth management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the securities and exchange commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. 